Hello, this is Steve Bailey, happily welcoming you to episode 12 of Laughing Gas, a Charlie Chaplin podcast. Now, this episode probably sounds already a little bit different from the usual ones, a little more echoey, and I will tell you why. I am recording this on a sick day from work. I seem to have some 24-hour bug. And you know how you feel when you have a sick day and you just want it to be a me day and just have everything go your way because you're sick and you deserve it? Well, that's what I'm doing today. Usually, I record these episodes in the master bedroom of our home, mainly because it is carpeted and soaks up the sound well. But today I'm too lazy to do that, so I'm recording this episode from the interior of my man cave, which has tile flooring, and so the sound bounces off a lot more. So I hope you will forgive me and indulge me for that. And secondly, I want to go ahead and get through all of Chaplin's Keystone films. Uh, I don't mean to brush them off. Everything that Chaplin did is is worth watching at least once, if not more. At the same time... The Keystones are obviously his very formative years, and uh, I want to cover them thoroughly, but I also want to get on to some of the more meaty stuff. So, chronologically, I have 13 films from Chaplin's Keystone period left to cover. I am going to cover them all in this single episode. So, get your popcorn ready, get nice and seated and comfy. Uh, I'm going to be really windy today. So, let me begin where I left off with uh, his movie from August 1914, Recreation. In the park, a woman leaves her husband, boyfriend, brother, who knows, a sailor at least, asleep on a bench. She finds another bench to sit at when Charlie happens upon the scene and tries to appropriate the woman for himself. Then the sailor awakens and sees what's going on. Hmm, this can't end well. This should play out like the typical Keystone beat each other up in the park hokum, And yet, once a couple of well-meaning cops get dragged into the fracas, things get funnier than expected. Charlie has a way of getting the best of acquaintances to turn on each other, as they never have before. And the woman doesn't really know with whom she should swear her allegiance. She just knows she doesn't want it with Charlie. It makes for a brisk and funny seven minutes. Next, we have The Masquerader. Clearly another attempt to show a comedy behind the scenes at the Keystone Studios, identified as such within the movie. Chaplin has brief scenes with his Keystone peers, Roscoe Arbuckle, very funny, and Chester Conklin, middling. This is also one of the only three times in which Chaplin impersonated a woman on screen. The premise is that Chaplin is fired from the studio by a director, played by Charles Murray, who dislikes him. So the next day, Chaplin returns to the studio in drag. A title identifies him in getup as a fairy. There are some lovely comic opportunities that go explored only about halfway. First off, Chaplin makes his initial appearance as Chaplin, 
he changes into his tramp costume a few minutes into the film. So for once, we're expected to accept Chaplin on the screen as Chaplin, even though he is put through the usual Charlie-esque paces. <laughs> second, this movie is the second of Chaplin's three on-screen female impersonations, as I mentioned, and it certainly fits right in the middle. Unlike A Busy Day, where he hammed it up as a broad, and the later SNA short A Woman, where he is a startlingly convincing female, here he does almost nothing with the gimmick, ex uh, perhaps because of the one real time constriction. Pity that such a fertile idea wasn't allowed to run its course, while an arse-kicking fest such as The Property Man was allowed two whole reels. Anyway, I think Chaplin got his job back after this one. Next, his new profession. This is about as politically incorrect as Keystone Shorts get, but if you're in the mood for that sort of guilty pleasure, it's a riot. It begins with Charlie in the park, sitting innocently, for once, and reading the Police Gazette. A nearby young woman wants to make time with his girlfriend, but must push his incapacitated uncle around in a wheelchair. The young man asks Charlie to push him around for a while and offers to pay him for it later. The uncle has a cast on one leg, and when you recall what happened with Charlie and a man with a gout in caught in the rain, you immediately brace yourself. Sure enough, the cast-up leg gets smacked a few times, but the real eye-popper is yet to come. Charlie passes a bar. Suddenly realizing he's an alcoholic, Charlie asks the uncle for a handout, but the uncle won't budge. Charlie keeps walking the uncle, who falls asleep in his chair. Charlie ends up rolling next to another man asleep in a wheelchair. That man has a tin cup and is wearing a sign reading, Help a Cripple. Charlie surreptitiously moves the cup and the sign over to the uncle's chair. A sympathetic nurse walks by and deposits a coin in the cup. Once she leaves, Charlie grabs the coin and is off to the bar. From there, it's one, did I just see that, moment after another. And when everyone gathers on a pier for the climax, you're just waiting for someone to end up in the drink. No disappointment there either. Next, we have one of Keystone, uh, Chaplin's best keystones, the Rounders. Film history tells us that because of his assertive ways, Chaplin bumped heads with a lot of veterans during his first months at the Keystone studio. It would appear that Roscoe R. Buckle was not one of those. Here and elsewhere, he and Chaplin are a delight together. Here, they play drunks coming in separately from a night on the town. As it happens, they have rooms across the hall from each other, and both have their wives waiting to nag them about their drinking. When the nagging gets out of hand, soon the wives are fighting each other instead of the husbands, while the husbands discover they go to the same lodge and find that as good an excuse as any to continue their nightly binge together. After seeing how well Char Chaplin and Arbuckle worked together, it's a pity that Keystone's Keystone, Max Sennett, didn't try to pair them again. The movie's only debit is, is that it is a one-reeler. Just when it gets really interesting, it ends. Next, the new janitor. Quickie plot summary, Charlie has just been fired from the title role when he manages to thwart a bank robbery. Charlie is the janitor at a bank, and some of the business leading up to his firing is amusing, but far too much time is spent on the straight story of one of the bank executives trying to embezzle funds from the bank's safe. The payoff, however, is terrific. Charlie, having stooped down to help a fainted bank secretary, nevertheless holds a gun between his legs to keep the bank exec at bay. The ending, too, is interesting. A policeman, having heard gunshots, rushes to the scene and impulsively takes Charlie away, assuming from his grubby demeanor that he is the bank robber. The finale is played strictly for laughs, yet it seems to look forward to Chaplin's later, more thoughtful pieces, such as Police. A flawed but intriguing short. Next, 
those love pangs. Charlie and his rival, played by Chester Conklin, are basically engaged in a Popeye and Bluto-like pissing contest to see who can score a woman. First, they hit upon their landlady, then they try for women in the park. Eventually, Charlie makes time with Chester's woman and another man's girlfriend before the men get their revenge on Charlie. A very lively short, the best part of which is Charlie's hyperbolic reactions to Chester's having made time with a gorgeous blonde in the park. Next, uh, one of his more controversial Keystone shorts, Doe and Dynamite. The main plot has waiters Chester Conklin and Charlie having to become bakers when the bakers at the restaurant where they work go on strike for better working conditions. Annoyed that the scabs have taken their jobs, one of the bakers hides a stick of dynamite in a loaf of bread and connives to get it put back into the restaurant's oven, causing predictable havoc for the movie's climax. But the plot is mostly an excuse for Charlie to shove everyone around, act belligerent and incompetent simultaneously, and sing a lot of dough at people primarily because it's so available. That old reliable, the arse kick, also makes several appearances here. And that's not much of an excuse for extending this too really to nearly a half hour's length. For the heavy-handed slapstick, my guess is that the blame goes to credited co-writer Max Sennett. Nothing is done with the explosion comedically other than a final gooey close-up of Charlie emerging from the doughy mess. Ironically, this short was among many Chaplin shorts to be shown at the New York Historical Society in, of all times, September of 2001. Needless to say, that year's real-life terrorist attack dampened the humor of the slapstick model, and the movie was pulled prior to screening. Next, Gentlemen of Nerve. Max, Swain, and Charlie attempt to sneak into an auto race via an opening in a fence. The movie's funniest bit is an extended routine wherein Char- Matt gets stuck halfway through the opening. Once he's seen and conspicuous, he continually motions to Charlie to leave him alone so that he can get back out. But Charlie mis- misinterprets the motions as Max asking for help and tries to push Max further, Mac, excuse me, further through the fence. Chaplin has some other good gags here, though they are rendered somewhat impotent by some of the most anti-social screen behavior he pursues on uh, he pursues up to time up to date. Excuse me. For example, at one point, Charlie is arguing with Chester Conklin and punctuates his side of the debate by biting Chester's nose. Later, Charlie burns Max proboscis with a lit cigarette. Charlie gets to stay and watch the race with Mabel Norman, while the other guys get hauled off by a cop. In the Keystone way of looking things, I guess that counts as a triumph. Next, his musical career. Piano movers Max Swain and Charlie are supposed to pick up a delinquently paid piano from one home and deliver a brand new piano to another home. One of the pianos is located at 666 Prospect Street, the other at 999 Prospect Street. Can you guess where this is going? At least one Chaplin biographer has compared this movie to the later Oscar-winning short from Laurel and Hardy, The Music Box. But both films are about piano moving and both happen to involve hills and great flights of stairs in their destinations. But the similarities end there. For one thing, Laurel and Hardy's child adultness, their likable dumbness as described by one of their biographers, is a grace note of characterization compared to the way Charlie and Mac slap themselves and others around here. Stan and Ollie do get somewhat combative in their movie, but only when provoked. And they come off as geniuses compared to Mac and Charlie, who never notice that there's already a piano in the house where they're placing the second one. The movie ends with the wrong piano sliding down a hill and into a pond. 
Such an ex excess in itself probably provided a huge laugh finale in 1914. Nowadays, it, like the movie itself, just looks like another wasted opportunity. <laughs> Next, his trysting place. Two married men, Chaplin and Max Swain again, are returning home separately from a walk. In his coat, Charlie has a fresh bottle of milk for his newborn baby. In his jacket, Mac has a romantic letter that he had promised but forgot to send for his secretary. By happenstance, both men stop to dine at the same restaurant. Will the gods smile upon these men and let them retrieve their own coats before they leave? Not for a two-reeler, they won't. This kind of situation might have been fresh in its day, but it has been worn to the nub by decades of unimaginative sitcoms of similar premises, not to mention the fact that it has what film critic Roger Ebert, decades later, called the idiot plot, the kind of story that could be finished in two minutes if the characters didn't behave like idiots. Instead, we must sit through Mabel Norman as Mrs. Charlie, berating and beating her husband for, for five minutes before she deigns to tell him why she is torturing him, and the painful restaurant scene where Charlie and Mac first meet up but not before competing in the worst table manners of all time contest. The movie's best moments are the quietest ones, such as when Charlie, Mabel, and Mac, in mid-fight, see a cop and suddenly go all civil for a minute until the cop is out of sight and they resume their battle. Otherwise, this is the sort of situation best left to the honeymooners. Next we have Getting Acquainted. Two men, guess who, Chaplin and Max Swain, are bored with their day in the park with their wives, played by Phyllis Allen and Mabel Normand, so bored that they take it upon themselves to desert their wives and then hit on each other's wives. Once they get a flummoxed cop, played by Edgar Kennedy, and the wife of a jealous Frenchman involved, they both live to regret it. Unlike their previous farcical short, His Trysting Place, with the same starring quartet even, this one gets it right. Lots of great exits to the wrong places, and funny misunderstandings all around. Standout gag, Chaplin sneakily uses his cane to lift Mabel's skirt. When Mabel slaps him, Charlie reprimands the cane, as though the whole thing was its idea. Pity that this winter didn't end Chaplin's Keystone series, instead of being the penultimate entry. <coughs> and now we go to final, Chaplin's final Keystone short, His Prehistoric Past. Based on his middling work here, the title His Prehistoric Past could just as easily refer to Chaplin's herky-jerky Keystone era as it does to this, his final Keystone film. The movie is set in the Stone Age. Charlie plays a caveman play named Weak Chin, who nevertheless resembles the familiar Charlie with mustache and bowler hat. Best gag in the film? Looking for something with which to light up his pipe, Weak Chin picks up a rock and tries to strike it against his side, the way Charlie would with a match. Weak Chin <clears throat> makes, his, makes acquaintance with the village's king, played by Max Swain, who happily informs him that every man in the village is allowed a thousand wives. Unfortunately, and strangely, the first and only woman Weak Chin hits upon is the king's main wife. When the king discovers this, he and Weak Chin fight about it. Weak Chin sne uh, sneakily sends the king over at the cliff and proclaims himself the new king, his first order of business being to consummate the marriage of his main wife. But the real king is rescued and knocks Weak Chin over the head with a huge rock, just in time for Charlie to wake up at a park bench and realize it was all only a dream. This was far from the first time the chaplain would use the dream, or the last time the chaplain would use the dream cop-out finale. Between him and Buster Keaton alone, it became a cliche long before TV sitcoms ever got to it. 
His prehistoric past is cute enough, but it was obviously time for Chaplin to move on to bigger and better things. And now I conclude with the first feature-length comedy from Chaplin or anyone else, Tilly's Punctured Romance. This movie was based on Tilly's Nightmare, a Broadway play starring Marie Dressler that opened in 1910 and was Broadway's biggest hit to date. For his history-making feature, romance director Max Sennett persuaded Dressler to climb on board. Of course, once the movie got made, it, it, it more resembled the Keystone style than Broadway, and whose name do you think was emphasized over Dressler's in the publicity? In any case, you have to view the movie with an open mind anyway. For Keystone or not, Miss Dressler is not one given to subtlety. Her character is simple, and I do mean simple, country girl Tilly Hayes, who is swept off her feet by a city slicker, played by Chaplin out of his usual costume and character, who finds that her father stores money in their country home. Once he absconds with the money, Charlie meets up with his former flame and partner in crime, played by Mabel Normand, and they go on a wild spending spree. In a strange plot strand midway through the movie, Charlie and Mabel attend a movie that happens to have the same plot of thievery, country girl, rogue, sidekick, as they have just pulled off, and Charlie and Mabel get a huge pang of consent, conscience. But not so huge that they ever consider returning the money to Tilly, though. This was just plot filler to drag the movie to feature length. Meanwhile, Tilly's mountain-climbing uncle, who is also rich, Buddha Thunkett, takes a huge fall and is left for dead. The newspapers report that everyone is on the lookout for the man's sole heir. Guess who? Charlie gets wind of the news, instantly abandons Mabel, and rushes off to propose to Tilly quicker than you can say, nice day for a white wedding. The movie's finest moment of pantomime comes when the lawyers reach Tilly and give her the news. Tilly puts two and two together and accuses Charlie of marrying her for her newfound fortune. Charlie's entire being puts on a display of hurt and sorrow that's one for the books. Charlie and Tilly get it, give a big housewarming party at their new house, which was previously the uncle's home, and once Mabel gets wind of the fortune news, she signs on as the home at, at the home as a maid. Then the uncle shows up, alive and well. How about those meticulous lawyers of his, eh? From there, it's mostly an arse-kicking revenge fest, complete with the Keystone Cops for the climax. At the end, Charlie is spurned by both women, who realize he ain't good enough for either of us. And the movie fades out with an intriguing shot of Mabel and Tilly in each other's arms that ought to have been studied more closely for subtext than it probably was in 1914. Now, you have to make some ultra-large allowances to enjoy any of the comedy in Tilly's punctured romance. Much of the stuff that got laughs here and in most Keystone comedies, mostly violence for violence sake, was the kind of notion that Chaplin eventually transcended with rich characterization. And as directed by Max Sennett, nobody, even Chaplin, comes off very subtly here. Dressler is the worst, telegraphing her every thought and move as though she was pitching to a Broadway balcony. We could have had a little more sympathy for her character if Tilly's temper had come only in short outbursts of emotion. Instead, Dressler plays it over the top all the way. Some of the movie's motifs, Charlie's slickness, his and Mabel's guilt at the movie theater, would be funny if anything was built upon them, with a later payoff. But Senate had his formula, move, 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 to be maintained at the expense of any logic. Thus, you wind up being more indulgent of Tilly's punctured romance than giving yourself over to it. Kind of like nodding your head when your senile uncle tries to tell you his latest joke. 
And with that, we conclude Charlie Chaplin's Keystone period. Uh, next up on the next podcast, we begin his period at SNA Film Corporation. Let me close with my usual blatant personal plugs. I, you can find me at Facebook, if you wish, on the Facebook page, another Charlie Chaplin Facebook page, which I hope you will join. And if you would like to email me about this podcast to tell me any of your opinions, good, bad, or neutral about it, please feel free to email me at laughinggaspodcast at outlook.com. Finally, let me mention a couple of other movie-related podcasts that I do. I recently completed a podcast on all of the films of Laurel and Hardy. You can find that online at anchor.fm under the name Hard Boiled Eggs and Nuts, a Laurel and Hardy podcast. And I am in the middle of uh, completing a podcast about the early Popeye cartoons, the black and white ones made by the Fleischer Brothers. That can also be found at anchor.fm under the title Blow Me Down, a Fleischer Popeye podcast. Let me mention also that this podcast, Laughing Gas, is available uh, through iTunes. If you are listening via that venue, please leave a written review and or a star rating. It really helps. In any case, I hope you will hit the subscribe button if this is your first time listening and continue to listen uh, to future episodes, of which there are many. And I thank you for listening this time. And until next time, this is Steve Bailey saying goodbye and God bless.